that good playing. Let's open our Bibles now to Joshua chapter number 6. Joshua chapter number 6. If you're a student of the Bible, you probably know that puts us right outside the walls of Jericho, at least in the first few verses of it. Before we come to the end of that chapter, we ain't outside the walls anymore. Amen? And uh, so, Joshua chapter 6, I want to read uh, with you, if I can, the first 20 verses. And that, that pretty much encompasses the scene of the taking of Jericho as a city. There's more to it as far as some things that God promised Rahab. And, and God certainly didn't just begin working in this situation in chapter 6. But this sort of encompasses the narrative of, of what transpired whenever they took the uh, city of Jericho. Verse number 1 says this, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat. And the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. It came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the re-reward came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. The armed men went before them, but the re-reward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp. So they did six days. It came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpet, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the walls fell down flat, 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the midweek prayer meeting. Lord, we need it. It nourishes our soul. It undergirds our faith. Lord, it encourages us in the midst of a, a week that no doubt many folks here have... It's been battles all week and maybe some discouragement. Maybe they fought the flesh. And, uh, but they're here tonight by faith. They've come, Lord, to hear from you. I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, take this message this evening and that you would use it to minister to hearts. May there not be a touch of flesh upon it, but Lord, may everything that's said bring glory unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be sure to give you the praise for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Joshua chapter number 6 is, for most people that have spent any amount of time in church, is a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, it's most of us, it was one of the first stories that we learned about when we were in Sunday school. And we have images, and if you're like me, and, and I don't know if you are or not, really, really young people won't be this way, but I, every time I hear a Bible story, I start seeing flannel graphs. Somebody say amen right there. And I see white people dressed up like Arabs and, uh, you know, things like that. And that sort of, I got those images in my mind. I can see the priest with the ram's horn. and I can see the little flannel graph of, of the Ark of the Covenant and the priest bearing it. I can just in my mind hear the Sunday school teachers presenting it with passion, even though they'd probably done it a hundred times before. And that left an impression on me as a young person. But I found that sometimes we have a tendency, when we've learned something at a young age, we, we learned it as, as a child. We learned the story as a child. And sometimes we think of it as a child's story. And I think sometimes there is a tendency to look at some of these Old Testament stories, and, and we, we probably wouldn't characterize it this way, but something in our mind, we just kind of look at it like Mother Goose. We assume that that's for the elementary school age, and there's nothing that we can learn that can inform our lives as adults. But as I read through this passage, there's many, many things we could say and many, many truths that are found within here. But I think we were to read the story of Jericho, we could boil it down to three basic truths that are vital to your Christian life and mine. And I want to preach on those Jericho truths tonight. I, if the Lord will help me to, I'm going to try to be brief. I've put me a clock up here. And uh, one of these days, uh, I'm going to put batteries in it. So, But by the Lord's help, I do want to take just a few moments of your time. And, uh, and I want to preach to you on these Jericho truths. Well, I see three things predominantly in this passage. You know, I think we could all acknowledge this is a strange passage. This is a passage that just, it don't, the old timers would say it don't gee and haw with the natural man, how we would expect things to be done. And there are several features of this story that if I'm being honest with you, I just have to take them by faith. I can't find any explanation for them necessarily, but I do find truths illustrated by them. And the first thing that strikes in my mind is deeply connected to a story found in the very next chapter about a man by the name of Achan. God gave instruction that everything within the city of Jericho belonged to the Lord. And He used a very strong word to suggest how serious He was. He said, everything within that city is accursed. You'll find if you read on in chapter number 7 that there was a man named Achan that did not heed God's warning. It's interesting because Achan's name means trouble. A troublemaker. He is a troubler. 
And let me tell you, this is oftentimes how the Holy Ghost works. And, and I, I don't know that I can point you to chapter and verse. Uh, you'll, you'll probably tear your concordance all to pieces. But I do believe we see this truth found in this passage. Look with me at verse number 18. The Bible says, And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed. Notice these last three words, And trouble it. Now, Achan's name means trouble in Hebrew. And even in God's warning, he says, make sure you don't trouble the camp of Israel. It would almost be like the Lord said, make sure whatever you do, that you don't Achan things. You know, the Holy Ghost has a way of taking a truth. And He may not be saying our name, but He has a way of saying our name. Amen? He may not be explicitly saying, He may not be writing your name on the pages of Scripture... But He has a way of speaking directly to your heart. The Holy Ghost can illuminate a truth to your heart and mind and make plain that the Lord's talking to everybody. But hey, listen, the Lord's talking to me. Uh, Achan would have been in a lot better shape if when he heard Joshua say that, his ears had perked up and he had said, you know, maybe I better pay attention. I want to make sure that my name does not match up with my actions and that I do not trouble the camp of Israel. Sadly, Achan did not do that. Instead, when they go in and begin to uh, take over the city, he spies out some silver and some gold and a Babylonian garment. And he covets these things. He looks upon them. He covets them. He takes them back to his tent. He digs a hole underneath the floor of his tent. And he hides them in there. He had hid them from Joshua's eyes. He had hid them from his family's eyes. He had even hid them from his own eyes. Isn't it interesting what sin will make us do? Sin will make us take something that can only have value either in beholding it or in spending it and we'll bury it. There was no benefit to Achan whatsoever in having that stuff in his tent floor, but he was getting ready to wreck his whole family over something that wasn't even benefiting him. You know, that's the way sin is. We'll make shipwreck of our family very often over things that we don't even derive the smallest pleasure from. It's just stubbornness. It's just depravity. It's just flesh that makes us do it. And so he takes all these things back and he buries them. He had hid them from his family's eyes, Joshua's eyes, the camp's eyes, his own eyes even but he had not hid them from the eyes of God. And God speaks to Joshua, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. i got a twisted sense of humor. And uh, I, I sort of love this. Joshua goes before the Lord because you know that later on in chapter uh, number 7, they go out to fight against a little city named Ai, much smaller than the city of Jericho. And they get what we here in East Tennessee call whooped. If you're saying it without an H in it, you're saying it wrong. They get whooped. And uh, the Bible tells us that this little group of people routed the children of Israel. And Joshua comes back and he's pretty upset at God over it. He wants to know why God would dare let this happen. And he goes before God and he falls on his face and he says, Lord, how could you let this happen? You've led us through the wilderness. You've brought us to this place. Now these nations are going to blaspheme you and they're going to curse you and they're going to think this was all a big joke. Buddy, I mean, he's really just laying it out there for God. And God says this, now this is the Toby Weber rendition, but God basically says, shut up, Joshua, get up off your face, there's sin in the camp. He says, Joshua, I don't want to hear your weeping and moaning and crying, I don't want to hear you criticize me, there's sin in your camp, you better get it dealt with. So Joshua gets up, and you know the story, I'm sure, of how that they, by lot, determine, they get all the way down, they find out that it was Achan that took it and they take him out, stone his whole family, they stone his kids, they stone his livestock, and he perishes that day. 
You know what this teaches me? I find in this passage a great truth about priorities. Priorities in life. You know, it's very interesting because when you come over into chapter number 8, you know what happens? They go back out against the city of Ai. This time they whoop them. And when they do, you know what God tells them? God says, every bit of the treasure that's in that city, it belongs to you. Listen, if there was something wrong with gold and silver, God wouldn't have put it in the earth. If there was something wrong with that Babylonian garment in and of itself, God would have eradicated it from the face of the planet. But we find that there is an accursed treasure in Jericho, not because it is intrinsically wrong, listen now, but because it belongs to God. And I'm reminded of this, that I don't necessarily have to embrace known or inherent sin in my life. If I merely keep back that which belongs first to God, then I have put a curse upon my life. What made this thing a curse was not that God hates silver and gold. wasn't that God hates Babylonian garments. The problem was God said, that belongs to me first, and you better not take it unto yourself, because if you do, you're robbing God. I feel like there's a lot of times that people get wrong impressions about us preachers. And I, I think sometimes people walk around thinking, well, the preacher just hates the golf course. He just hates the lake. He just hates the campground. He just hates the Dollywood because he's always preaching against us being up in those places. But the reality is this. is not there's anything necessarily wrong with those things in and of themselves. But if they displace God in your life... And let me listen, I can go down the line. I mean, all of our young people are over there. But listen, I, I ain't against Little League. But I'm against it when it interferes with the house of God. I'm not against extracurricular activities, man. I mean, I'm for it. I think kids, by the way, I think sports is good for kids. I think it teaches them team building. I think it teaches them accountability. I think it teaches them hard work, pays off, and dedication. But when those things become golden calves in our life, when we take time that ought to belong to God and give it to those things, they become an accursed thing. I've heard many a preacher say it, and I'd say amen to it, that there's been many a family ruined by a camper. Many a family ruined by a boat. Many a family ruined by a little league team. Many a family that was ruined by softball tournaments. Not because those things are wrong, but if they displace God in our lives, if they become a priority, what are we teaching our children if we teach them that those things rank above the house of God? And the same thing could be said of many things. I, I Listen, you already know, you've, your conscience has already preached to you about tithing, so I ain't even going to mention it. But we could talk about any manner of things. I'm not against entertainment. I'm not against... i got a TV in my house. I probably should be against it, but i got one there. I'm not necessarily saying these things are wrong in of themselves, but when they di- anything that displaces God is wrong in our life. There was an accursed treasure here, but I also see a, an important accounting truth here. I see this, that if we take something that ought to belong to God and we take it to ourselves first... Not only do we lose that thing, Achan drive no joy. He didn't get to spend an ounce of that silver or that gold. To my knowledge, he didn't get to go out and parade that Babylonian garment one moment. He lost every bit of it, and he lost more than that. You see, if we take things that belong to God, we don't just lose those things, we lose a lot more. But you find this, that for those that were willing to obey God, And to say, all right, I'll give this to God because He wants it. When they come to the city of Ai, God says, you honored me, now I'm going to honor you. And He says, anything that you find, it belongs to you. Just take it to yourself and enjoy it in good health. You know, the reality is, we always lose by robbing God. We always gain by giving to Him. 
That's backwards in the mind of the world. I know that it is. That's contrary to the flesh. The, the notion of the flesh is that I need to try to look out for number one and try to gather things and hoard things for me and I need to make sure I'm took care of. And I'm not against being wise and I'm not against being circumspect with your finances, but I'm telling you this, it is not wise to leave God out of any area of your life. It is foolish to do that. That's true of finances, but it's true of our time, our energy. It's true of our attention. It's true of our passion. It's true of our dedication. We will always want... You know, the Bible says... i got to move on. But the Bible says this about God's people when they're weary. Those that wait upon the Lord, they'll renew their strength. I'll tell you this. Listen, you want to wear your out, uh, yourself out for the things of this world, you'll find it happens pretty quickly. But if you'll give your energies to the work of God, you'll find God will just keep renewing your strength. Uh, the Bible says that God makes our feet like hinds feet. Whenever we get weary, whenever we get tired, whenever we're backed up against the wall and we got no answers, if we'll put God first, He'll make a way. And I'm just telling you, when I read this passage, one of the things I can't help but notice is how important our priorities are. We put God first. We'll honor Him. He'll honor us. We'll always come out the better for it. I learned a truth about priorities. Number two, I can't help but when you read this, you can't help but see that there's an important truth about the plans that we have in life. Now, I will tell you something, and I think Joshua would probably amen this. This is not the battle plan that I would have devised. There is nothing about this battle plan that makes sense to the natural mind. In fact, the people of Jericho, we don't read of them doing anything to try to combat this because they said, what are they going to do, just walk us to death? But instead, we find that God's plans are never like our plans. I don't understand anything. I don't understand why it was necessary to walk around. I mean, listen, I don't know why they had to walk around at once, let alone 13 times. I don't understand why they had to walk around at once a day for six days. I don't understand why on the seventh day they had to walk around at seven times. I don't understand why that they couldn't have simply God have knocked down this wall before they ever even took a step towards it. And the reality is, naturally speaking, there's no reason that couldn't have been the case. But the fact of the matter is, there is an unusual quality to God's plans. God never does things the way we expect Him to. And it's amazing to us, and, and this is true for me, how shocked I am that my ways are not His ways. I mean, every time I turn around, God's doing something different than I would do it. Now, listen, I've been saved, what, uh, 21 years now. And you would think in 21 years, you'd get it. But I'm thick-headed. And every time God does something that I'm not expecting, I shake my head and say, well, boy, I can't figure God out. And I think, I don't know if the spiritual man ever talks to the natural man, but if he does, I'd imagine he says, duh. Duh. <laughs> Don't you think if God was doing things like you do them, he'd be in the same mess you're in? The fact is, God's plans are never like our plans. The book of Isaiah is very clear. that he, Listen, it ain't that he don't have thoughts. That's what we tell ourselves. Well, God just don't know what he's doing. No, God knows what he's doing. He's just doing something different than you'd do. It's not that God gives no thought to it. He has thoughts. It's just his thoughts are not our thoughts. He has ways, but His ways are not our ways. Unless we wonder who has this thing figured out, Isaiah says His ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. The truth is, and you've heard this, you've heard it so many times, you're probably thinking, Preacher, why are we even talking about this on a Wednesday night? But I need to hear it, so I'm going to figure you need to hear it too. 
The fact of the matter at the end of the day is God is rarely going to do things the way we expect, but He knows better than we. There's an unusual quality to God's plans. God never, I I don't understand why they had to be quiet. I've never understood that in life. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself when I was getting ready to graduate high school, I I thought, man, I'm excited to never be shushed again. Nobody going to shush me. I'm never going to, that's exactly right. And then a few years later, I got married. And I learned, man, that there's just some problems don't go away, you know. You just got to live with them. I don't understand why they had to be quiet. I don't understand why being quiet helped the plan. I don't understand why shouting helped. Listen, if there's anything I know, it's shouting. But I don't believe I could shout a wall down. I don't believe you could either. And yet we find at the end of the day that God's plan was perfect and efficient and impeccable. There's an unusual quality of God's plans. But then I want you to think about this with me. There is an indispensable component to God's plans. I can tell you how these plans would not have worked if nobody would have walked. If nobody would have, if the priests hadn't took up the ram's horns. If the Levites hadn't borne the ark on their shoulders. If, if the re-reward hadn't come behind, if the, if the men of valor hadn't gone before, if God's people weren't willing to walk in silence as they had been instructed to, or if when the time came to shout, they were unwilling to shout, if the priests were unwilling to blow their trumpets. You see, at the end of the day, this story presents to us that the singular indispensable component to God's plan, God does not need your strength. He doesn't need your wisdom. He doesn't really need your resources. God needs one thing and one thing alone. He needs your obedience. This was the biggest challenge they had faced. And they met it as they did every other challenge. Can I give you a word of wisdom tonight? Face your biggest obstacles through obedience. Don't try to face them through cunning, through ingenuity. Don't try to face them through sheer determination of will. Face them through obedience. Go before the throne of God and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but if you'll tell me what to do, I'll follow I'll obey. If you'll go before me, then I'll sure go behind you. And I'll just do my best to try to obey your word in all things. See, the particulars had shifted and changed. And they were unusual. And they wouldn't be what anyone would have thought of or planned for. But the mandate did not change. The mandate was simply obey. Do what God has asked of you. And I think often... We face varying obstacles in life. Listen, I face problems as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a son. I face problems all the time. And it seems like none of the two of them are the same. And there is this constant uh, constant race or, or impulse, this desire to try to figure out and figure out and figure out and figure out. And listen, there are times when God has to instruct us and guide us. There are times that we have to use the faculties of knowledge and wisdom God has blessed us with. But I found that regardless of what the particulars are of the obstacle I'm facing, it is always achieved and overcome. It is always met with the same mandate, which is obedience. There's nothing you can do to get around it. There's nothing you can do to get ahead of it or behind it or out from under it. If you want the wall to fall, you're going to have to obey God. If you won't obey God, it doesn't matter what you do. There's a reason the people of Jericho didn't run, because they didn't have no reason to run in their mind. Uh, they, they were This city, when uh, archaeologists have said that this city itself, that whenever uh, there's a few things they have noted when they have excavated it, one was that they had a ready supply of food and of water. 
This city was impregnable and had all the resources it needed to live. The only thing that could ever conquer this city was if some mysterious force just knocked its walls down. And that's exactly what happened. There was nothing they could have done to topple those walls except obey God. So listen, when obstacles come in your life, don't get nervous. I know we all tend to get nervous. Don't, don't, don't give up on God. Don't give out on the Word of God and, and the house of God and the, the Spirit of God and, and the prayer closet. Instead, just settle in and say, Lord, when I need fresh instruction, give it to me. But until the time comes, I'm going to keep doing what I know is right. I see an important truth about plans in this passage. And finally, and I'll be done tonight, I see an important truth about the promises of God. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. You know, one thing I can't help but notice as I read this is that when God makes a promise, He keeps it. God had said to Joshua, the city is going to be thine. I don't know when it was that God gave the actual battle plan to Joshua. The Bible never really tells us when that moment was. But it's interesting to me when I, when I juxtapose the thought of, of Joshua receiving the promise and then of Joshua receiving the plan. God tells Joshua, you're gonna overthrow the city. Joshua says, alright God, here we go. You tell us where the men are we need. You tell us where the resources are. You tell us where the chink is in their armor. You tell us where the weak spot is in their wall. And God says, no, you're gonna walk around it for seven days. And yet, despite what God's plan was, despite what the obstacles were, the promises of God remain. And this is the bedrock of our confidence in the midst of trials and afflictions, is that God's promises are certain. They're just certain. God doesn't have the capacity to lie. You might say, well, preacher, God can do anything. He can't do anything and still remain the God that He is. He couldn't sin and remain the God that He is. He can't lie and remain the God that He is. In fact, if you want chapter and verse, Paul writes to Titus and says it's impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. And oftentimes then when we're standing in front of the wall, the obstacle, the challenge, the problem, the, the promises fade from our mind. And we forget that, listen, God is not took by surprise by the things that we're facing. Listen, and I'm not going to do a lot of preaching on it, but listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 6, verse number 13. The Bible says, When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, there's a reason that when presidents stand uh, at their inauguration, they'll say, so help me God. Now, don't none of them mean it, but they say, so help me God. The idea being that if God wants to, He can strike me dead because I'm breaking this oath. So here's the question, who's God going to swear by? Who has authority and power enough to challenge God? Verse number 17 says, Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs the promise uh, of promise, the immutability. You know what that word means? It means unchanging. Unchanging. Immutability of His counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. He couldn't do it by covenant because He didn't have no one to enter into a covenant with. So He just confirmed it by an oath. He said, here's how you're going to know that I'm going to keep my promises because I'm saying I am. 
I swear by myself, I could not be God and lie to you. And therefore, if, if you know me to be God, then you know I won't lie. Verse 18, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. God's promises are certain. He's never lied to anyone. He's not going to start with you. Beyond that, He couldn't start with you, even if He had some impulse to do so. He can't lie and still be the God that He is. And so we can rest assured that no matter how tall or how formidable the wall we're standing in front of, it has not done anything to shake the promises. of God's promises are deeper than the foundations of the world. The foundations of the world are set upon God's promises. When God chose to create the world, He said, let there be. The world was created by the Word of God. Therefore, it is more likely that the sun will burn out, more likely that the oceans will dry up, more likely that the grass will turn blue and the sky will turn orange than it is that God will break His promise to you. His promises are certain. Let me give you a final thing. And I believe we have an important truth here in, in Hebrews concerning. It, 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 it harkens back. Turn over to chapter number 11. Chapter number 11. Now you know this is the hall of faith. Hall of fame of faith. There's a thousand uh, words for it. You want to know what it really is? Hebrews chapter 11. But the Hebrews writer, and I believe it was Paul. When you're preaching, you can say different if you believe different. But I believe it was Paul. Uh, when he pins down under inspiration of the Holy Ghost these words, he goes through and catalogs faith throughout the times of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And, you know, typically in literature, what you have is, is a crescendo in a narrative. So in other words, as you're talking about something, you don't want to say something real big at the first and then go to lesser ideals. Typically, you start at a place and then you just continue to elevate until you reach the climax of the narrative. Well, as he's going through these narratives, as he's talking about faith and its power and function and capability, he comes down to verse number 30. Verse 30 and 31 present the last of the distinct narrative examples of faith that he gives. After this, he says, time would fail us, and he, he, he rattles some things off. But the last two, the crescendo of this narrative of faith is this. He says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. And by faith... The harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. I'm reminded that God's promises are strong. They're stronger than anything that we face. When endeavoring to bring to a crescendo, to bring to the focal point the idea of faith, Paul said, hey, and by the way, if none of that impresses you, by faith the walls of Jericho fell. By faith. A little portion of that wall stayed standing. It's a reminder of this, that God by His promises has the ability to cast down and to hold up. It's the the only greater miracle that happened that day than those walls falling down was that little section of the wall on the northern side of the city that stayed standing. And it's a reminder that God is specific in His promises and He's strong in His promises. God has the ability to cast down any wall that stands in front of you. He also has the ability to hold up any portion of the wall that needs to be held up. And it's a reminder of this basic fundamental truism of life, spiritual and temporal both. That if God chooses to do something, 
It's because it's perfect. Equally true is if he chooses not to do something, it's because it's equally perfect. God had the power to throw those walls down. God had the power to hold those walls up. And the fact that that little section on the northern side of the city was standing was because that woman Rahab had placed her faith in the promises of God. As a result of that, God spared her, gave grace to her. She was brought into the family of God. Listen, that tells me this, and I've faced some, some not in my life, heartache, but I've watched other people experience heartache this week that I can't explain. I, I can't give you a reason for. I learned very on, early on in ministry that a preacher's job ain't, ain't to have all the answers, because if it is, he'll quit within four months. I, I, I've looked at situations that I can't describe, I can't detail, I can't explain it. And so in those moments, I've had to merely recline on this immutable truth. That God makes no mistakes. He does what He does perfectly, efficiently, impeccably. And the promises of God are stronger than any enemy or foe or challenge that we face. I don't know what you're up against. Man, there's probably things you're dealing with in your life that you've not shared with me or your church family that no one would even believe you're going through. But I'll tell you this, that whatever it is, whatever foe you're facing, God's promises are strong. And should it be His will to cast those walls down, or to keep them standing. The only thing that guides God's actions are providence and love, not any limitation or lack of ability or capability. He does what He does because it's right, not because it's His only option, but because it's perfect, and it's because it's exactly what He chooses to bring about in your life and in mine.